Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today, we're joined by Gary Hoberman, founder and CEO of Uncork. One of the hottest topics in software today is low-code and no-code, and with good reason. Low-code and no-code empower anybody with an idea to build without the constraints of technical knowledge. Prior to founding Uncork, Gary was the CIO of MetLife, where he managed a billion-dollar budget and a team of over 8,000 individuals. In this role, Gary saw the power of applying low-code and no-code tools for the enterprise. Today, Uncork has raised over $350 million from leading investors such as BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, and Capital G. And Gary is on a mission to reimagine enterprise application development. Gary, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. This is a pleasure. Yeah, Gary, excited to have you on on the show today. We're going to dive, you know, pretty deep into the incredible journey of Uncork over the last five years. But I want to start the discussion today with the founding story of Uncork. How did you come up with the idea? Give us a little bit of the genesis of, you know, where the company is today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really an incredible journey. And the team that's been with me in this journey has just been made even more incredible, remarkable story from all aspects. So on Quark itself, if you think about what our concept is and goal, it's not unique and new in the market because we've been hearing about this since COBOL, since Java, since all these days of, of building software better, faster, and cheaper, which is the three things, the trifecta. Um, but it's never been achieved before on Quark, which is what we're excited about. And so, so my journey, I'm, I'm a hacker. I'm an engineer. I love this idea that while I'm communicating with you through, through video, and this is amazing with the audience, I'm pretty efficient at communicating with a machine. And I started in fifth grade communicating with machines through punch card machines. And then we had IBM and Deckmates and Sinclairs and Vic20s and every language out there. And I loved that someone almost as a puzzle created a language to communicate with the machine and you use that language to make it do something. And it listened most of the time, of course, right? Sometimes we know it doesn't, but it was always a challenge and puzzle for me to solve problems with technology. And that's, that was my journey. And, and so my journey began on the corporate side. I thought it would be fun to build high-speed trading platforms, foreign exchange systems, wealth management platforms, uh, managed account trading systems, where one little change in a percent triggers trillions of dollars to trade behind the scenes. And I love the idea that technology could be applied to the hardest, most complex problems on Wall Street and in banking and in insurance and capital markets. And that's how I grew up. So my, my background was... I, I said, hey, could I actually create technology to solve real business problems in Fortune 50 Wall Street companies? And I became a managing director at a very young age and then became a global CIO with 10,000 employees at a very young age. And what I kept seeing was this promise of technology and what it can do and what I grew up knowing its possibilities are, the art of the possible, as I like to say, is what it just wasn't being achieved. And what I saw was infrastructure was getting scale. Cloud computing is a great example of scaling infrastructure and security was able to be scaled and databases were scaled. Yet applications, which is really all the other things are worthless without applications. And the applications themselves achieved no scale and nothing's changed since the invention of technology. And so uh, I kind of felt it would be I was looking for someone to fix it. I tried every solution you could imagine out there from the large CRM systems to the large ERP systems to the, the small startups. And I kept saying as a CIO with 10,000 employees, no one gets it. I'm spending a billion a year and um, nothing's, I'm not able to show value to my business partner. 
I, I keep telling them, do you want to move faster, better, or cheaper? You can only choose two of the three. Mm-hmm. And the reality was the businesses were getting frustrated and seeing lack of delivery and technology is hard to change. And the biggest problem I saw when I created Uncork was 100% of what was happening was legacy. You were supporting legacy and you're creating legacy. There's nothing else happening in technology groups today. And I, I felt the change was needed. It had to be someone that knew it. There was no one coming. I went through every executive briefing center in the West Coast, flew in out there in private jets to go meet them when I was a CIO. No one actually saw the problem in front of them, which was applications. Everyone's talking about everything else but, but applications. And so created on Quark to basically fix the world of software. And we've created a, a technology that enables the future of software to be configured visually and most importantly, what we call legacy proof or future proof, which is the best part of what we do. And you've raised over $365 million today to fuel the vision, but it, it wasn't always that easy, right? In the early days, you got, I think you've, you've, you've said before, you've got, you got like 200 no's to Uncore. Tell us a little bit more about you know, that experience uh, in, in fundraising and, and kind of the persistence of, of keeping with the idea you know, through, through that type of feedback. So, you know, as a global CIO, you build a network. And my network I had was incredible. It meant that I was able to make calls and basically get to the top Midas list of investors and every investor out there and do a pitch. And for me, I was a, I was a corporate guy. The, the idea of doing a pitch, I mean, I could do pitches for sure, but the idea of raising money was new. And I kind of felt like when I look back on it, I was like in kindergarten. Like you ever go back to your old school and you actually look at the bathroom and it's like, well, that, it looks a lot smaller than I remember. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what it was when I look back. The reality was we had a vision that every single investor looked at us and basically said, either you're crazy, can't be done, or my favorite, you're too old to do it. And I've got told I was too old many times by investors I won't name who are top known investors. And they basically looked at me and go, you're like 45 or 44. Like you're, you should have had three exits by now. You should have been, you know, and and where's and like I, I was told by one amazing friend friend and investor that they believed if you worked one year in the corporate world, you can never be CEO of a startup. You're almost institutionalized like Shawshank. Funny. First you hate them. And you get used to them. Enough time passes. Get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Great movie, by the way. But but with that, all I kept hearing was no's to the point that if we didn't get a no immediately, we celebrated and the no came the next day. And um, instead of pivoting and changing the pitch or changing the vision, uh, I self-funded it. And my first employee uh, friend, and he was a McKinsey partner who I was his client, um, he, Bassam, he got his PhD in machine learning from MIT. I mean, brilliant. When I say self-funded, it meant Bassam and I went back to coding and we hadn't done that for years. And, um, and it was the best time. It was, the, it was the most difficult, the best time, but it basically meant we'd made a decision. Let's focus on getting revenue before funding. And we actually achieved revenue before funding. We had, um, the best clients lined up. We had five clients within six months from Liberty Mutual and Principal Financial and um, three other of the major top 10 players all signed. And we look at what we did with them and it's still amazing four years later where we are now today. 
and that journey. Did that ever waver your confidence as you were going as you were going through? So there's there's this one part I'm hearing, Gary, from you, which is you know you've seen the problem kind of inside and out. You have this core conviction, of course, that the problem exists and there needs to be a solution for it. Um, but I've been through fundraising. I've, I've invested in a bunch of companies. I've helped founders go through fundraising. There's definitely a psychological toll that comes from, you know, the, the gurus of technology telling you no, and this can't be done, right? So how did it, you know, did it waver your confidence? Did it, you know, force you to double down? You mentioned, you know, we focused on revenue first. How, how was that experience kind of psychologically and how did you guys push through it? I could tell you it was, it was tough. There's no question. I never doubted the idea. I never doubted the vision and I never doubted the team, which is the most important. And we were able to get product market fit proven through clients and actually showing the values there. I could definitely tell you during the fundraising, um, we did a very different stance. So I set my own valuation for the company early on and I've done this in every round since. And so I had a pretty big vision as a seed round, you know, we were going to be a $50 million value a seed, which is um, pretty large for a seed company. And um, I didn't want to waver. And I really used that, that point to make sure and filter out investors who didn't get it. So there was the occasional investor who put a term sheet in front of us early on. And I kept looking at the investor and asking questions. And what I realized was they would be the wrong board member for us. They're not... And we needed to go without a board. There were times, no question, I was walking from the train station after you know, a 22-hour day and coming to work where my legs felt heavy. And I could tell you the feeling. And I remember the feeling of walking. And the truth was, um, it's what I look back as part of the journey, the best part. It was the most, you know, sometimes those uncomfortable places you are or where you learn the most. Yeah. And there was no question I learned the most during those times. And, um, and you get used to hearing no, and you get to used to, and I kept saying, I kept saying to myself, like, you know, I spent a billion a year as a budget. Every yeah. year, a billion dollars I spent in technology. I, I was paying some vendors 120 million a year for their work. And so who else would know what's needed but me? Like, that was what I kept saying was like, I, you know, but a lot of the startups are looking for the 20 year old, you know, kid that's going to basically jump out and, and change the world. The reality is this change that was needed, we are displacing every large tech company in the world. I mean, we are going after the largest tech companies. We don't compete with small players. And I would say we don't compete with anyone under 20, 30 billion in market cap today. We're competing with companies, some of them in trillions, of course, and the largest one in trillions would be Microsoft. We're competing with companies like Salesforce and ServiceNow all, all day, day out. And we're not competing against them. It's people get frustrated and are saying, could you replace that? And they're asking us. But we're, we're changing the way software is written. That's what we're, we're so excited about that. So, so that early stage for sure, every fundraise became the same story, which is here's what we're worth. Now let's go find investors who believe in us, believe in this journey, will be along for the journey. And Goldman Sachs led our series A. We had capital G and BlackRock come in for series B, capital G led. And then BlackRock stepped out of the, the second place in series B and led our series C. And uh, then we achieved over 2 billion valuation in under three years of payroll opening up. And that's just the beginning. When we hit 2 billion, that was like, that's a start for me. That's like this, our whole team is super excited. And, and they're in, a, I mean, the talent we have in our company with over 500 employees is unsurpassed anywhere I've been. I mean, I, the 500 employees in Encore, we could displace the 50,000 engineers in any bank that I've seen today, like in every aspect of it. 
and it's it's just amazing what could be achieved. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the product, right? And that, that you guys are building and we can start a little bit more conceptually. So there's a difference between how low code and no code is thought in the B2C space versus the B2B space, right? In the enterprise, it's not just about the product itself, but a lot of the guardrails that surround it. So security, infrastructure strength, you know, et cetera. And I actually think to your point around kind of why a more seasoned or experienced founder that's actually, or why a more seasoned professional that's actually seen the problem is more the archetype of a founder to solve a B2B no code problem than potentially a B2C low code or no code problem. Um, but I want you to talk a little bit more about no code in the enterprise versus consumer. And just how do you think about those nuances when, when building the product and building the company? Yeah, it's a great question. And so what we started with, with the first five clients was we said, we're going to solve the most complex use cases that no company in the world has ever tackled and solved. So just as an example, after I left Wall Street for insurance, I was working with $100 billion companies and they were trying to say, we'll give you a single platform to host life insurance in the US and annuities in the US, two product lines. Yeah. Or we'll give you a single platform to run PNC, auto insurance, personal or specialty insurance, commercial. No one's ever done it. There's not a single company that actually achieved it. And all the money and R&D they spent, they never could. So we started off and we said, insurance is broken. It's 80% paper. Let's solve the most complex use cases for the largest companies with the most complex regulation requirements, to your point. So these are companies that we're going to say, trust us. We're, we're 10 employees, trust us to store your customer data, your social security numbers, your date of births, your national IDs, your passports. Trust us to be your store of that data and keep it secure, which meant we hired a CISO before we ever hired an engineer. So we had a security officer on board. The second payroll opened up before an engineer came on board. So we knew, but more importantly, we also knew coming from enterprise what a CIO would want. What would a security officer want? What would the infrastructure team want to support it? So we weren't saying, we're going to give you a new tool in your tool belt. Uncork is the entire work shed. It's every aspect of it, which means, first off, I've seen disasters with multi-tenancy. And as a buyer of technology, I always looked at multi-tenancy as a risk. It was a convenience at some point in the past to support multiple clients in a cost-efficient manner. But with cloud computing gone away, even virtualization back 20 years ago, it's, it's no longer needed. So what we said with Uncork was, we're going to give the clients single tenant. There's no one in your tenant top to bottom but you, which means it's your data. And not only that, because it's single tenant, that key is your key you maintain to encrypt your data, which is different than every other customer. It's why they trust customer. It's why Goldman trusts us as an application to store data. And it also means we encourage every customer to pen test us, vulnerability assessments, ethical hack. Because what's unique about us is even though it's single tenant, the DevOps capabilities behind it are so advanced that every change we make propagates the change to every client environment without a single downtime. No one goes down. And what it also means is it enables that if Goldman does a pen test tomorrow, every other client in every industry benefits because they're testing the same source code. Yeah. There's no difference. And that's, that's so right there. If we stop there, that's entirely different from any other technology you've ever seen before because everyone's running in their own pods and their own structure. They're all starting from ground zero and building up 
instead of starting where the last customer left off, which is what we do different. And uh, and that's so. So when it comes time to consumer, what's interesting is our the theory we had while tackling insurance was we can move to banking yep. without any issues, because coming from banking, banking is simpler than insurance for sure. It's nationally reg regulated, is SEC of OCC, got it. We had to be worm compliant, which is right once we'd many for banking. And then the theory was when we saw banking moving into public sector, healthcare, life sciences, federal, there's no difference. It's all proven out. So every industry is running on the same code base. And what it is allowing us to do is because we started with the most complex, everything else is easy. The same holds true with consumer. So we did actually build a consumer-facing website last year for a charity called Play On, an amazing organization, raised money during COVID for arts, for NAACP and Legal Defense Fund and others and Why Hunger. Their entire platform is built on Uncork directly for consumers. And the difference is that we are not opening it up for engineers to build outside of the large enterprises currently. From a capability point of view and a technical point of view and a, and a readiness point of view, the platform's ready for it, consumer. From a targeting point of view, enterprises are spending $500 billion a year in creating legacy, an additional $500 billion a year in funding te technology packages, which are all legacy, and then a trillion dollars a year in supporting and hosting those. So to us, that $500 billion of coding, we could today stop. 100%. Every aspect of that $500 million, we could basically transform into Uncork. That's a market which is significantly bigger than any TAM out there in the world. And that's kind of what we're going after. That's what excites us. Well, and I, I want to pull on, um, there are a lot of interesting things there. I want to pull on specifically the point around, um, you know, what's going on, what, what kind of gets unlocked in the enterprise, right? So what you, you alluded to it a little bit, which was, you know, if Goldman runs a test, Kind of everybody else can be the benefit of it because previously they're running you know, these tests or uh, their code bases in, in silo. Um, I think about it in kind of two two buckets, and I want I want to get your reaction to this, which is, you know, if a if a if a company has uncork, I think two things happen internally, right? One is I think you unlock the technical talent significantly, so engineers can actually start leveraging their time on more value added tasks versus mundane tasks. Um, but then potentially more even more exciting is you more broadly actually unlock everybody else's talent, right? So now the prerequisite to add value is you just have a creative perspective on the business, right? As opposed to being constrained, you know, with technical knowledge or, or needing to, to speak a certain language. How do you think about those two elements? And then maybe we can use that actually as a, as a launching point to an even more macro unlock that I think something like Uncork does, which is not just intra the organization, but actually between organizations. Yeah. And, um, the best example is, let's say the two of us are CIOs in a bank. We work in the same bank. We're in two different teams. So you're supporting equity trading. I'm in fixed income. We sit next to each other. Yep. We're going to decide different technologies to support our business. You're going to say, I want to build a Java app here. And I'm going to say, I want to do Node.js here. And you're going to want to use Python. I'm going to use Ruby and Rails, whatever it is. We're all going to stay within an architectural defined approved roadmap that says, you can vary off these technologies. And here's how... We're together gonna work with our infrastructure teams to host us. And in the past, I remember the days the server was running onto someone's desktop. You, the, the janitor kicked the plug and the app went down. Like you'd have to come into work and plug it back in. And you know, that's moved into cloud. So infrastructure to us is the pipes and plumbing, nothing exciting, you know, it's behind the scenes. We both probably will have standard infrastructure support, SAs, DBAs. You're gonna build your own app. 
and you're going to build a record for a trade. And you're going to build you know, a record to basically do an order management system on that trade. And I'm going to build the same on my fixed equity fixed system from unis or bonds and all that's great. The reality is um, I'm going to make this up. You're going to build a screen, which is going to say, enter the ticker and click next. You get the price, click the quantity, click next and execute it. Yeah. I would call that a wizard. You know, that's what we call wizard. It was back from the days of doing taxes at home with CDs as TurboTax and wizards. And so that wizard concept today, you're going to code it. You're going to keep state. You're going to keep the variables. I'm going to build my own wizard component. And if you stop there, we're duplicating code next to each other. And that code, statistically, every 50 lines of code written has one bug. The statistics, what they show. But that code has to be hosted. The code's got to be secured and high performance and vulnerable. And it's objective. If I looked at your code, I'd be like, God, like, what were you thinking? I could do that in two lines code and you did it in 20 and you'll look at mine and say the same thing you'll say it's inefficient so it's subjective error prone it's hosted so the reality is each of us should be doing something unique as you said we should each be focusing on something different for our business maybe it's a new risk algorithm a new trading algorithm maybe it's focusing on that last mile to the street there's something we should be doing but instead we're focusing on a wizard component that we're building now reality is there's a lot of solutions that promise to move faster. I mean, Dreamweaver was in the day for, for generating HTML. And I used Arthur Anderson's case tool in the 80s for, for generating code. But the reality is there's this uh, brand of tools came up called Lowcode that said, hey, use us and we'll go faster. And all these tools are 20 to 25 years old. And they're all generating code faster. They're generating legacy faster. Even that wizard component that I just described that each of us is coding, you still have to code it in every one of these tools. It doesn't exist as a component. The reason is because what your question was. So the question is, the reason is, if you look at those two divisions and you give them a software platform to build, you're done. You're happy, you're selling licenses. It's like drugs, you're pushing drugs. You're like, as many as I can, let's sell to every division in the company, let's sell to every bank, let's sell to every insurance company, and let's go. We looked at the problem and said, that's a failure. If we generate code that someone could override, we failed. If we let you inject code, we failed because you can no longer be upgraded. So if we want to move everyone from Angular to React like we did, no one should ever even know what occurred. No one should ever know we moved you with Docker to Kubernetes. No one should ever know it's down, occurred, any changes. We abstract out the technology and enable you to create software. The base, best thing is that wizard, that next and previous button wizard, we built it for our very first client. The second client needed it with state and pick it up in the call center, omni-channel customer handoff, security, picking up social security numbers. We built it. We built integration day one to be the most complicated advanced integration to any legacy system, assembler systems, vSAM, any technology out there. We built it from scratch because no other technology works. And then reality is every new customer coming in, instead of starting without a wizard component, like you would today in any low-code software, you're starting where the absolute last customer left off and anything that you need that's unique and different, the next customer benefits from in a functional point of view. But more importantly, like you said, testing. Right now, there's almost 100 clients that are testing their software end-to-end -end as we speak here now today in UAT. Yep. Because rightfully so, they shouldn't trust us. They should say, I want to make sure nothing breaks because I know you're changing things all the time and you're... so. The reality is they're constantly testing their system end-to-end, -end, which means we're getting the benefit of everyone testing the same code base, cyber testing, pen testing. That doesn't occur anywhere in the world. 
And that's why statistically we would say we're 200 times faster than a Java developer today, but we're 600 times less bugs than any engineer or any system out there. Even Linux, we're eight times less defects than the Linux open source operating system. That's, that's amazing. That's where we're Yeah. And, and so that, that's the intro layer, right? So if both of us are CIOs in one bank, right? And we're working kind of side by side or so. Uh, there's also this interesting interlayer, right? Meaning how different groups can collaborate or different companies can collaborate. And I think this is what was so powerful about Slack early on. Messaging wasn't necessarily new, but there was now this new standard way for folks, you know, in different companies to talk, you know, to one another. And I think, I think Slack really innovated that. And then of course, you know, Microsoft Teams, a bunch of the collaboration softwares have, have picked up on that necessity now, what are the interesting possibilities you think of when unlocking the ability for different companies to leverage what others are building? So I imagine this world where you kind of have Uncork as the underlying infrastructure, and now, you know, you can expand to say, I'm Goldman, I'm JP, I'm Morgan, but it could even be, so that could be layer one. Layer two could be on the MetLife's, the AIGs of the world. So there's still some financial bent, but they're different businesses. But I imagine there's a whole ton of possibilities you guys are thinking through where an insurance company is doing something a certain way and a CPG company is doing something a certain way. And it actually ties, you know, to be the right type of solution as opposed to, you know, what other insurance company is doing, you know, in the space or so. So how do you think about the interlayer? I think that starts to actually get very, very interesting at scale. Yeah, so you absolutely hit it on. So the truth is when we look at our, what we call our base components, core components, like a text box, you could say, I want a text box on the screen and I'm going to then put a mask on it for social security number and then put the drag in a plugin. And when you actually enter the text box social, bind it to a plugin to do a credit check. Yep. And let's create a rule. If the credit score is between this range and this range, do something different. In Uncork today, every customer could create their own, what we call snippet, which is I'm going to take these series of components, connect them together and save it as a reusable component that someone else could just start with next time and drag in a function. And the difference is we support what object-oriented never got right. We support the concept of, do you want to reference it or do you want to uh, copy it? And if you reference it, do you want to keep the latest update or do you want to accept changes when they're done to the parent? So yeah. trickle down. And it's unlimited levels of nesting. So you could build, if I was a bank, I could say, I'm going to centralize and uncork my customer models and my institutional, my retail, my bank accounts, my products, and it build this library that lets you easily maintain your future stack. Gary, you used this phrase earlier, the art of the possible. It, it takes me back to my McKinsey days. We, we, would, we would use that phrase and kind of talk with clients a lot about, you know, kind of reimagining their futures. If you were on a public board today or presenting to one, right, which, which I know you have a lot of experience doing in your career, how would you frame this question today? And, and I asked this actually from the lens of, um, I think one of the interesting things I'm seeing in a lot of the companies that I'm investing in is it's not just the CIO space, but a lot of the other C-suite spaces, procurement, HR, et cetera, you know, that have more prototypically been thought of as, let's say, defensive spaces, right? Not necessarily business revenue generator spaces. We're seeing how software can really unlock those functions um, and actually turn them into offensive pieces, legal, very similarly in an organization, right? How would you, how would you kind of frame the problem domain or the problem space, you know, for a public board that's considering, you know, something like what Uncork solving today? So first question, if I was on a board, and again, as you've mentioned, I presented to public boards my whole life, Fortune 50 companies. First question I'd be asking is, um, every board is being shown metrics of technology deliverables. Yep. So typically it's in um, traffic lights, red, yellow, green traffic lights. And are you on time or on budget? 
So the first thing you do as a board member is throw those metrics away. They mean zero because you could deliver something on time and on budget and it adds no value and almost bankrupts the company. So the question is, is the technology initiatives you're investing in creating value for you as a company and the shareholders of that company? The second question is, is it actually creating legacy? So is it actually going to be legacy tomorrow? The second this stands up, the second we finish this. So we consolidate to a single trading platform. Great, is that trading platform legacy tomorrow? Is it tomorrow you're gonna tell me we need to move to something else? Because that's old technology and old stack is it can be risk. So the questions we want board members to ask is exactly that. How are we doing in delivering value through technology and how much of that is actually legacy? The questions, that's what we wanna say. That's what we, we enable. Um, we are the only company in the entire world that's future-proof, meaning we can move people to a futuristic mobile device holographic you know, from Star Wars and when we make the integration once, all customers migrate without ever single change to their system. There's no more. They're never stuck. They're never locked in. And that's really what's unique. So that's what I would be asking is about future-proof technology and is this setting us up. To your point earlier as well, I am an engineer. We believe engineers are one of the highest skilled resources to add value to the business. This doesn't change. We don't eliminate their role. The engineer is our creator. They're the one using Encore to create software. Just instead of writing code, they're visually drag and drop. They're doing the same skills they know. It's procedural thinking. It's design thinking. It's smart and how they lay it out and design it. No different, but there's just no code. But it frees them up to your point. So we're 200 times faster than code to create it. That's 200 times. So the engineer could actually focus on a brand new business model for the company, a brand new concept. Maybe it's machine learning or some AI algorithm that they've never seen before. And that's, I, I kind of feel, I'm not sure if you feel, but like even with my phone in my hand, I still feel like we're in middle school. I feel like it's that awkward phase. Like I remember when the Apple watch came out, which I always wear, like I remember going to the airport so excited to finally use my Apple watch with my barcode to get into the plane with a ticket instead of a ticket and you, you couldn't fit your hand underneath the scanner it was like it was like this just take it off and put it under and so i kind of feel like we're in this awkward middle school period of technology where we haven't broken out of what's possible covid accelerated the need it's no longer an accessory it's a necessity is what i say in digital and we have to be digital it's accelerated you know it's accelerated but I'm excited by when we take all the engineers, you know, I read recently a bank today announced, I think we have 95,000 technologists in a US bank here. And if I could change their role, so those 95,000 technologists could be replaced by a thousand Encore creators, then there's, you know, 94,000 engineers creating the future of banking for all of us to make our lives better is the way I see it. That's amazing from my point, that point of view. Absolutely. As, as we round out the conversation, Gary, I want to I want to focus on uh, a little bit of a lighter note. And it's something you did uh, years ago in your organization. Um, I think it's indicative of the way you think, certainly after chatting with you, I think it's certainly indicative of, of your personality. You changed everyone's titles from developer to engineer uh, to encourage more creativity and innovation. Many, many may say, you know, a small technical change, but not for you, right? Um, explain the thinking just behind that change and um, you know, how sometimes I think, you know, I, the littlest of things I think can, can culturally make such an, such an impact in an organization. Yeah. So when I came into the role of, of global CIO and I traveled around, the first thing you do is you learn, 
as I mentioned, you, you, you get uncomfortable. You put on a headset and go in a call center. I went in ride-alongs with agents and cars and I'm just, cause I had no idea about the business. I wanted to learn it. I knew trading, I knew capital markets. So I wanted to learn and I wanted to meet employees. And what I kept hearing when I met employees was, was confusing terms. So, you know, technical consultant, I'm like I don't know what that does or a technical advisor. I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure what that is either. And, and then there was developer. And the word developer to me, whether it's developer or citizen developer, I hate the word passionately. I mean, just the reason why is because a developer in my mind is hired to pump out code or maybe it's pump out a building if you're a developer, you're, you're pumping out real estate. And an engineer to me is solving a problem. An engineer is kind of lazy. An engineer says, before I write this code, did someone else already solve it? Did someone else already do this piece? Is this, why am I doing this? Let me ask the question. Why do I need this? Let me go back to the, by the way, shouldn't we be doing that? They already did it. And so when I basically got in and I saw all these titles of developers and, and technical specialists and technical consultants, we relabeled 670 employees overnight to be engineers, to basically say, your goal is to be lazy and solve the problem, not pump out code. Well, Gary, this was this was awesome. I, I so appreciate you taking the time. Um, I think the problem you guys are solving, and of course, you know, the, the record of success speaks for itself. Um, but I love your perspective on its early innings. So, looking forward to continuing to following the journey in Uncore. You know, seeing how you and the team continue to build. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to share your perspectives with us. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. <laughs>